Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So we continue on the clinical reasoning series, and on this episode, I'm speaking with Mark Jones. And if you haven't already listened to the previous episode in the series, titled Do Clinicians Think Like Scientists? with Roger Carey, I suggest you take a listen, as my conversation with Mark builds nicely from there. So Mark's an adjunct senior lecturer at the University of South Australia, with 35 years experience teaching undergraduate and postgraduate physiotherapy. He has a special interest in biopsychosocial healthcare and the teaching and assessment of clinical reasoning. Henmark has conducted and supervised research in the areas of clinical reasoning and musculoskeletal care with over 90 publications, including three editions of the book Clinical Reasoning in the Health Professions and the book Clinical Reasoning for Manual Therapists. His latest book, Clinical Reasoning in Musculoskeletal Practice, was published in 2019, and I've linked all these books in the show notes. And Mark has been one of the major contributors to clinical reasoning theory within MSK Healthcare in the last 30 years, and we discuss some of his key work, including the seminal writing with the late Louis Gifford, and also Ian Edwards. So in this episode, we talk about the development of clinical reasoning theory beyond mere diagnostic reasoning. We talk about the different aspects or strategies of clinical reasoning, such as procedural and collaborative reasoning. We talk about the pursuit of a structural or pathological diagnosis, as well as talking about clinical reasoning within a biopsychosocial framework. We talk about Mark's own clinical reasoning framework involving hypothesis categories, and we talk about diagnostic reasoning approaches, such as hypothetical deductive reasoning, and pattern recognition. And we also talk about clinical reasoning in novice compared to expert clinicians. And finally, we talk about the role of metacognition and critical reflexivity to mitigate errors in our clinical reasoning. So it was truly an honour to speak with Mark. The label pioneer is probably overused, but in Mark's case, it captures perfectly his status. His work on clinical reasoning theory was one of the cornerstones of my own doctoral work and helped make explicit the processes behind my thinking and doing in my clinical practice, which, up until engaging with Mark's work, were completely unbeknownst to me. And Mark's knowledge of the field is incredibly extensive, as is his ability to communicate and make this information accessible and explicit to students and clinicians. As ever, all the papers and resources we talk about are linked in the show notes. So I bring you Mark Jones. Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. So there couldn't be a clinical reasoning podcast series without having you guest star on it. So, so, I mean, your work together with Ian Edwards and Joy Higgs was certainly seminal in my 
grappling of clinical reasoning and, and learning it both as a clinician and researcher, but it's been hugely influential to me and I'm sure many other healthcare professionals. So thank you so much. It was um, a lot of work over many years, so it, it's good that it's had some impact. <laughs> so before we dive into some of that work, perhaps you could introduce yourself, your clinical background and your kind of academic and educational background. Sure. Well, for starters, the accent confuses people mm. because they expect to hear an Aussie accent. All those years, you know, a few months ago is the first time that we spoke, and I was just expecting to be some Aussie <laughs> kind of cruising in yeah. South Australia. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm a dual American Australian citizen, and I'll give you the short story behind that. But I grew up in in Midwest America in the state of Iowa. My family moved to Florida. And then I, I did my initial uh, university studies at the University of Florida, and my first degree was in psychology. And then I, I worked for a little while, not as a psychologist, because you have to go on to, to achieve that. I, I just worked within the field. And, and then I went back and studied physiotherapy at the University of Iowa, and I finished that and I really landed on my feet with my first my first job because I just was surrounded by some really um, excellent clinicians. I worked with a, a director named Tom Holland who was a, a PNF instructor. I worked with a master clinician really, Joe Farrell who had did his postgraduate studies in Australia and another physio who had sort of a a Norwegian manual therapy training. And it was that sort of exposure to these these really advanced clinicians that developed my interest in um, in doing my own postgraduate studies. I'd done like a lot of new graduates, tons of professional development courses and and we had our own in-services that were were excellent. And so I was I was doing well after several years of working. I went from general to to outpatients pretty quickly and developed a musculoskeletal interest. But it was that interest and exposure to Australian manual therapy with Joe Farrell and, and, and my director, Tom Holland, both had studied some in Australia. And so in 1985, I, I took off and went to study. And Jeff Maitland was still teaching then. For those who don't know, he's, he's one of a number of, of key individuals that contributed to the development of manual therapy worldwide. So I spent a year doing um, what was a graduate diploma in um, manipulative therapy, they called it back then. And then I completed that and I pretty quickly went on and did a master's degree because it wasn't a master's to start with. And so I did a research master's, which was in the area of clinical reasoning. So that sort of started to combine my manual therapy, musculoskeletal physio with clinical reasoning interest. And then over the years, I gravitated into postgraduate teaching. And then eventually, I, when Maitland retired and then Another really key individual in my education, Patricia Trott. She's one of Australia's first specialists. She retired, and then I took over running. Our um, It was a master's degree by then, a master's in musculoskeletal and sports physiotherapy, which I then continued to do for many years. 
Okay, so so I hadn't realised you had a you'd encountered psychology. You'd studied psychology formally at universities. That explains perhaps why your work is is so wedded now to clinical reasoning. Is that was that a natural kind of journey? Yeah, that's it's true. And I was um, with the psychology is in some ways it's a bit like physio. There's so many different approaches and pathways within psychology. And where I studied, um, the person I studied under was very much a behaviorist. So I was reasonably knowledgeable in behavioral approach. Interestingly, not in what we nowadays call the cognitive approach. And that, that exposure didn't really come to me until later when I started to study cognitive behavioral therapy as it's used in physiotherapy. But I think my psychology background was always a good just general grounding. And I was really torn. I could have gone down that pathway as a career, and I'm sure I would have loved it, but I chose physio and have never looked back. So so we can probably dive in. I mean, so the series is on clinical reasoning, but I know when I was kind of writing my chapters for my PhD, which was around clinical reasoning too, on clinical reasoning. So I became, became pretty familiar with your work and and Ian Edwards' work and Gail Jensen and the whole crew at the time. I guess it was a kind of early to mid-noughties, are we still saying noughties, 2000s, where there was so much work, such brilliant work, really unpacking what clinical reasoning appears to be. So, but I thought we'd start with a pretty horrible question. You know, what is clinical reasoning, given that there are interchangeable terms such as clinical problem solving, clinical decision making, kind of clinical thinking? Is there an easy way to discern what these different ideas are? Or yeah, there there are different terms like that you've just listed and you could get really picky and say what's unique about each term and they're not they're not really synonymous with each other in other words decision making versus reasoning but it, you know it is how you define it and how you how you use it but i i would broadly say clinical reasoning is is the analytical thinking process which people use in all aspects of life, but it's that process in a clinical situation. So it's analytical thinking, not daydreaming, it's analytical, and it's in a clinical situation. Now, that's fine because I think it, it sums it up. You, you come across other definitions. In fact, I, I came up with a definition once, but that was the reason I did this was to help my students understand the purpose that I wanted them to understand of reasoning in the approach we were teaching. So I'll just, you know, I'll read off to you. I, I defined it more formally as a process of inquiry and analysis carried out by a health professional in collaboration with the patient or client for the purpose of understanding the patient as a person, their context or personal circumstances, and their clinical problems in order to guide evidence-informed practice. And then I can, you know, when you have that kind of formal def definition, you can break it down and really focus on each aspect of it, the analytical part, the collaborative part, the understanding the person, bringing in the psychosocial, the understanding the context, bringing in their, their environment, their social circumstances, the understanding the problems, bringing in the 
biological aspect of it. So it it helps me reinforce when I'm teaching this what I think are important dimensions of this mm-hmm. analytical process. And I think a key bit there in, in your definition was this notion of collaboration. Kind of preceding that was clinical reasoning was really something done to a patient or about a patient very much it you know, resides within the mind of the clinician and very little involvement from the patient other than just to the clinician to extract this information via clinical tests or some conversation but you building in that collaborative aspect and i think in it was developed well there are papers around collaborative reasoning in itself and developing that even further but that was pretty novel at least to my mind at the time yeah, I think that is um, it's a really important aspect of clinical reasoning. And I think you're right that it traditionally people would have conceptualized clinical reasoning as what goes on in your head, um, intrinsic, you know, analytical process. And it, it was Ian, actually, who he in fact was a student of mine, both a, a postgraduate student and, and then I worked with him on his PhD. And Ian is a great thinker himself. And in all the writing I've done and students who have written essays for me, he was the first one who came up with, I think there's more to this, Mark. And he, he, he came up with this collaborative aspect of it, which as soon as he came out with it, it's, it was so obvious, of course, that is, that is something we do. Um, and that was sort of the interesting thing about clinical reasoning back then. I, I'm always very quick to say this isn't something new. You know, even before we and others wrote about it, it always occurred. It just was more, it wasn't explicit. People didn't talk about it. They didn't think about how they did it. They didn't fully mm-hmm. understand it. So that collaborative aspect that Ian highlighted was something that I immediately recognized as important and hadn't thought about really signposting that. And so we went on to do that. And now, interestingly, now, if you, if you delve into literature, you come across collaborative reasoning, which actually comes out of OT to really, I think they're first to, to coin that phrase. Um, but now you see it mostly under what they call shared decision-making. And that is a really important topic. And so if I now talk around that. That's what I do. I go into the literature and and introduce concepts of shared decision-making, especially not just that it's important, because there's actually good research that shows outcomes are better when patients, clients feel they have a say, when they're consulted, when they have a say in in their health care. And then there are strategies to facilitate that, which I won't won't go into now, but that, that is an important dimension of clinical reasoning. And it's probably, it's a good point now just to acknowledge the work that occupational therapy did in developing the literature on clinical reasoning. So Mattingly, Fleming, they were writing about interactive reasoning, um, narrative reasoning, and really developed the literature in the kind of 90s, I think, maybe mid 90s, early 90s. So incredible work. Yeah, they, and the names you mentioned are the key names. Others have come along since and contributed. Mm. In fact, Ian Edwards' PhD, which investigated clinical reasoning in different areas of musculoskeletal practice, what he was able to demonstrate was that these, and he chose what what we classified as expert 
clinicians, but he was able to demonstrate that they used all these different dimensions, or we call them focus of clinical reasoning, or back then they called them clinical reasoning strategies. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that was what what those the early OT literature, and then I think what we added to highlighted that reasoning isn't just a diagnostic process. And then within diagnosis, and maybe we can come back to this later, not just a, a diagnosis of pathology, but it's also understanding the person, hence psychosocial. It's also a, a shared decision-making process. It's got ethical dimensions in the judgments. There's a huge part of reasoning that, that we've referred to as procedural reasoning. That's a really, to me, a fascinating aspect of reasoning because it's it's something that you won't find in the research. You'll find clinical guidelines that, that are just that, broad guidelines of what approaches to therapy or you know, treatment strategies have the best evidence for different problems. But what they don't do is they don't go down into the details of exactly how do you deliver that therapy. Where do you, you know, which intervention do you use? What do you mm. use first? What dosage do you give? How do you progress it? How do you combine different treatments? What do you reassess? All the decision-making involved in treatment selection and progression, which is so important, is just not investigated in the research. So we, we look at that as procedural reasoning, and we get, clinicians and students to think about that. It's, it's, not a, it's not a black and white sort of process, you know, every, but there are, there are things you can do poorly within it. Like, for example, how well you reassess and whether you are even aware of the different treatment options available to you. Because as you know, common error is people get into habits of always doing the same thing. So yeah, that procedural reasoning and what was the other one? Pro prognostic reasoning is another... You know, just can I help this person? And I, I always, I always tell my students, I've yeah. never met a patient yet who didn't want to know, can you help me, and how long will it take? And even though it's not an exact science, you need to be able to answer that question, and you need to be able to have a reasoned answer. So you need to be able to tell me what do you think, and say why you think that. And so we, we spend time working on making those judgments and then practicing the reasoning behind them. And then really importantly, when you get it wrong and, you know, you said it should be straightforward, you know, three, four, five treatments at most. And here it is five treatments later and they're 20% better. You learn from that. You go back and work out what did I overweight? What did I underweight? What information did I miss initially that came out later? And you can get better. You know, you're never going to be totally exact, but it's it's yet another dimension of clinical reasoning. I mean, that, you know, as we talk about your work with Ian and the clinical reasoning strategies, I mean, it's based on so many memories, but that work was seminal because up until that point, as you said, I mean, the research around clinical reasoning largely came from medicine and people like Elstein that just looked at kind of the number of diagnoses that, that students versus clinicians made and the speed at which clinicians arrived at diagnoses. But so that was kind of largely the understanding of clinical reasoning in the literature then. And then, you know, the DOTs came along, you and Ian and others came along and just began to really develop this colourful theory of clinical reasoning with these different components 
So I remember reading that as a clinician as well as a as a kind of doctoral student and just thought, wow, this really explains more about what what I do, or at least what, what goes on with patients, which had never been touched on by anything. None of my osteopathic kind of studies. It was all it was it was so rich. I mean I'm just gonna signpost there was a whole ton of papers and obviously Ian's thesis, but um at least those papers around it was clinical reasoning, physical therapy in physical therapy journal from memory. And I'll, so I'll just link that paper and his PhD thesis because it was so so brilliant. Yeah, it's um, it, it goes back to, you know, we all think, but we don't think about our thinking, and that's really what happened. Physios have always reasoned, but we were less aware of it. And I look at that as it's hard to improve something you're not aware of. You're not aware of the process. So if we can increase our awareness of the process, of the sort of errors we might be making, then we can work on improving it. But what it also did when we started to make it more explicit is it gave educators something to add to their teaching. And so I would argue that they always taught reasoning because physio teaching would have always used patient problems. They always included real patients. When they did that, you can you can be sure it was always an analysis of what the problem was and what treatment should be given. So that was all reasoning. But now when it sort of became a little bit more of an, an academic understanding of what's involved in the process, and the complexities of it, you know, it's not so simple as these few things mean it's this diagnosis and here's the treatment, although sadly that still occurs. Then what what's happened is educators have started to be creative and develop different ways to facilitate and then, of course, assess clinical reasoning. So I did the, the first episode of this series was with Roger Kerry. And your name came up two or three times just about the work that you wrote or the papers that you wrote. That early paper, Clinical Reasoning in Pain, I think it was, in Manual Therapy Journal, yeah. one of the first editions, I'm guessing, of Manual Therapy Journal. When it was called Manual Therapy, now it's called Musculoskeletal Science and Practice. Yeah. But um, so that early work, your work was largely within MSK and pain. And perhaps tell us about some of that early work. Well, yeah. Back then, what what I was trying to do, because it goes, I can remember, it goes back to 1987, and I was still a pretty new graduate, and I'd finished my master's degree, and I was trying to sort of disseminate what I had understood about reasoning, which, as you've highlighted, was was really all primarily from medicine and nursing. That's where my understanding also came from. And I looked at that and said, wow, we, we do this too, but we do it a little differently and we have a slightly different focus, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I came up with this notion of, of, well, what's the purpose of our physiotherapy examination? And I think my definition of clinical reasoning kind of captures that purpose. That's, that's what I had in mind when I wrote it. I understand the person, their problems, their circumstances. But then what are the what are the clinical judgments we need to make? Because I would argue most people, even now, if you ask them, so what's clinical reasoning? They'll start talking about diagnosis and often about pathology because that's how they conceptualize clinical reasoning. And that is obviously a big part of it, not just pathology, but what I call problem classification. 
but I I knew there were more aspects to our reasoning and and that was highlighted. We just went through in some of those other, you know, procedural, ethical, collaborative reasoning. So I tried to to come up with what I called categories of clinical judgment that I felt and my you know, my, my whole focus was musculoskeletal, so I wasn't going to be responsible for the whole profession. Um, and I, I came up in, in musculoskeletal, could we take all the questions and all the tests that we use and could we sort of cluster them into how does that information help us? What do we use it for? What are the key areas of clinical judgment? And so I came up with initially, I don't know, four, five different categories of clinical judgment. And I, I present them at one of our conferences in 1987. And that, that concept, interestingly, has, has sort of stuck. It's worked reasonably well. The list of categories have grown as they should be because, you know, no one person should define, here's what you should be deciding on. It should capture contemporary practice. It should, and, and of course, contemporary practice is, is quite diverse, you know, not just within a country, but across countries. So there, there's, there never will be a definitive list. But I argue, like when I, when I present this, particularly if I present it internationally, don't get hung up on my list and don't get hung up on my terms. But I want you to get hung up on what do you do? I want you to get hung up on thinking about what are the key areas of clinical judgment that are important in your practice and uh, represent all your questions in your test. And you're probably going to find they're going to overlap with mine, but you may have other ones. And I think that's the real key. And then when the pain, whatever you call it, paradigm shift movement came along, that got added to the, the list of key judgments because before it just kind of would have been somewhere embedded in diagnosis, but it wasn't a key decision that we wanted musculoskeletal physios to make. We then decided, yes, we think pain mechanisms, is that important? So as soon as something becomes important, what you do if you want a student to think about it is you signpost it, you give it a name. And we gave it the name pain mechanisms and we highlighted what do we know about this so far? How can we categorize it? Importantly, so what? What does it mean in terms of treatment? What does it mean in terms of prognosis? And, you know, it it kind of made its way into that list. And that's that's what I like to emphasize, especially when I'm talking to academics, is this should be an evolving list and it should represent contemporary practice. There's no way the list should stay the same over the years, but we need to think about those key clinical judgments. I think while we're on that topic, you know, and we're, you know, there's another kind of, it's a bit like the Beatles catalogue. There's another phenomenal paper you wrote with the late Louis Gifford and Enid Edwards kind of reconceptualizing or conceptualizing a model to implement the biopsychosocial model in the kind of management of pain, something like that, again, in Manual Therapy Journal, and I'll link the paper in the show notes. But this was, at least from memory, can I say the first, or certainly one of the first papers within MSK to begin to operationalize the BPS model in a kind of useful, meaningful way. But a phenomenal paper and just, you know, it, was, it seems like such a long time ago now, but still, I still see it talked about on Twitter. I still send it to students to a huge impact. Yes. Well, Louis, I have to 
let you know that Louis studied with me in 1985. So we had a, that's that year I came over to do my graduate diploma with Maitland. And um, and back then, education was about, well, universities were about education, less so about money and businesses. So we literally had nine students in our class, which nowadays you could never run a, a program, as you'd know, with without making money, without having enough students. So I, we had David Butler and Louis Gifford and some really excellent uh, other local Australian physios, but but that's where I got to know Louis. And then we kept in touch all those years. And, and I've got enormous respect because I personally credit Louis with the real paradigm shift around pain and biopsychosocial. Um, there's quite a few people that have contributed to it. And now it's it's an amazing list of people. But I, I feel Louis was was probably the first. And he liked the you know the concepts of reasoning and and where I was going with it, and he could, he could relate to it, and so we found it very easy to sort of collaborate and try to try to articulate the the, the biopsychosocial as applied to physiotherapy and to and the the weaker part of that for physiotherapists was arguably always the psychosocial. We were pretty good because we were brought up in the medical model and we were brought up analyzing the body and analyzing it biologically and physically was our was our real strength movement analysis but we we weren't so much in in the psychological and and Louis got us thinking about that differently in terms of it not only its contribution to patients health problems but also its significance in the in their presentations and its influence on the physical his mature organism model, I will still put that up, even though, you know, people might say it's an outdated model. I still think it's just a a brilliant, simple way of seeing the interconnection between things. So what we did there was we, we then, you know, yet again, talked about the hypothesis categories and the key areas of judgment and talked about psychosocial. And I still talk a lot about psychosocial because while you you don't come across you don't come across physios who no longer think it's their role like that's not my job that's the psychologist they say it's important they recognize it's important they say they do it but then when you pin somebody down and say well so what do you actually do what what are some of the d- things you ask about when do you ask about it how do you decide what's relevant and what's significant they they struggle so what it tells me is they don't have an explicit framework in the same way they've got an explicit framework for analyzing the physical body. And so I think in some way, you know, going through these, this notion of hypothesis categories and then articulating each one, in this case, psychosocial, gets people thinking about how they do that. And hopefully they'll either take what you suggest or they'll develop their own um, but they'll they'll have an explicit framework. It won't just be a, a gut feeling or the patient volunteered it so I knew it was a problem. Well, what if the patient doesn't volunteer it? You know, they, they don't necessarily expect yeah. to talk about their psychological status when they're seeing a physio or an osteopath. They, you know, they, they, they want to talk about their pain and what they can't do. So maybe we could, you know, we, we've talked about how 
contemporary clinical reasoning kind of recognising that, that it occurs far beyond the construction of a diagnosis. But nonetheless, the ascertaining of some diagnostic slash causal explanation to a person's predicament is still kind of crucial, crucial role that health professionals play. Perhaps we can just talk about diagnostic reasoning and and some of the components to it and people might be familiar with pattern recognition and hypothetical deductive reasoning and there may be some others so perhaps introduce that is probably an area that people are familiar with and perhaps misunderstood yeah so diagnostic making a diagnosis and i i'm okay with the concept of a physio diagnosis because i do believe it's it, and again, I'm, I'm talking musculoskeletal area of practice. I do believe a physiodiagnosis overlaps, but it's not exactly the same as a medical diagnosis. So I'm, I'm all right with that. And it's a very important part of, of our clinical judgment. So in my latest iteration of the hypothesis categories, I refer to it as problem classification physiotherapy diagnosis. I, I've started to use the phrase problem classification because I, when I think about diagnosis, I mostly come across people using a pathological diagnosis, and that can be problematic. Identifying a possible pathology is only one way of categorizing a problem diagnostically. So I'll, I'll come back in a moment and and suggest other ways that I think we also do it. And in fact, I think we actually often categorize problems, the same, same patient. We often use several different systems of categorizing it. But just to highlight some of the limitations of a pathology-focused diagnosis, like if that's the only way you think about it, well, the problems are hopefully are, are kind of obvious in the sense that you can have pathology that's asymptomatic. And that there's just, you know, now endless research that demonstrates you'll see it around disc prolapse, you'll see it around tendinopathy, you see it around degenerative changes and, and the evidence of the percent of the population that are asymptomatic and have evidence on, on scans of, of these pathologies. So we know that you can have pathology that's asymptomatic. We also know you can have symptoms without overt pathology. So you can't just rely on pathology and you can have, for example, the person who has strained their tissues. And, and I often use the example, just bend your finger back far enough and it's going to hurt. You're going to activate nociceptors in your finger and that's going to, you know, that's going to be a threat and your brain's going to create pain for you. But there is no overt pathology when you've done that. And that happens all the time. It happens when you stand too long at a concert and your low back starts to hurt, it doesn't have to be an overt pathology. You're just bending that too much and you've just got to move it. <laughs> You're getting nociception that in that case led to pain. Your brain's telling you, change your position. So the fact that you can have pathology that's asymptomatic and you can have symptoms without pathology becomes really important. Maitland, you know, way back when I studied with him and his, his what he called his brick wall concept, he emphasized that one pathology on one side of his brick wall could have multiple presentations. So you could take any pathology you can think of, and it's not hard to think of it. Well, it can present acutely, it can present subacutely, it can present chronically, 
And there's so many variations of it. So you can't just say, oh, here's the pathology, here's the treatment. He would say, no, you treat the signs and symptoms. You don't treat the pathology. He didn't, he didn't deny the pathology and he said, we want to understand as much as we can. But I think that's another important limitation if you only think about pathology and don't think enough about individual presentations of different pathologies, you, you miss the need for varying the treatment according to the presentation, even though they have the same pathology. So that's, that's kind of the first thing I say around problem classification diagnosis is it can't be limited to pathology, but I then would qualify we shouldn't throw pathology out the window. And I do get a little bit sensitive when you hear somebody say 60% of the population over this age have a disc prolapse. And what they're doing in their message is they're trying to tell you to not look at the scan, don't pay attention to it, it's not important. And you think, hang on, <laughs> that's the wrong conclusion to reach. Yeah. It means you can't rely on that in your diagnosis. You can't just take the scan and say, well, I know what it is and here's how I'm going to treat it because there are symptomatic pathologies. It'd just be ludicrous to actually ignore that. So we, we need to hypothesize, is what, this is where I like to bring that word in because unfortunately, it, the clinical examination isn't great at really the specificity of our pathology or structural diagnosis. So you hypothesize about the pathology. That in itself will have implications to prognosis, to management, but you don't rely on that alone. You still get all this rich information about the presentation. But then one of the reasons I like to think about problem classification is because in addition to pathology, we think about and we, we categorize problems as disorders or syndromes. So, you know, I could rattle off all sorts of disorders, a spinal stenosis, a greater trochanteric pain syndrome, a lateral epicondylalgia. They're not, those phrases aren't pathologies, they're, they're syndromes, and their syndromes are made up of typical signs and symptoms. And there's research around those syndromes, and it might include the typical pathologies, but there's, there's another category of problem classification that's kind of disorder syndrome. There's a category which is around pain mechanisms that we've touched on. There's a category around psychosocial, which really should also be part of our, our diagnosis. There's also just understanding the physical impairments the person has, and people don't usually call that diagnosis but I'm not sure we shouldn't be including it as a categorization because that's often what we treat. We treat the control. We treat the tightness, the stiffness. So they're, part of, they're an important part of my analysis of the problem and problem categorization. So I like to think about a range of different ways of categorizing, and depending on the presentation, I will talk about the pain mechanism. I'll talk about another one is the source of the symptoms. And what I mean by that is what structure do you think it's from the hip or do you think it's referred from the back? Well, let's be more precise. When you say the hip, do you think it's the joint or do you think it's a particular muscle in the hip? So now you're going from structure to tissues. 
And so they're like levels of specificity that you can use in your diagnosis. So my problem classification will often include things about pain mechanism, things about the source, things possibly about a syndrome. Um, and I'll hypothesize about a pathology if I have you know, good reason to do that, that, to suspect there's a symptomatic pathology. So yeah, they, they all kind of come under physiotherapy diagnosis. Now, the other thing that you, you talked about there, you, you mentioned in that question was the hypothetical deductive reasoning process and pattern recognition. And I do believe those are important, and I believe they're, they're helpful in teaching reasoning because they, they capture what we really do. And this goes all the way back to the original medical work of research of Elstein. They demonstrated, and then a lot of researchers, medical researchers since then, and then in, in physiotherapy, it's been demonstrated that we also use those processes. And so, you know, when we said early on, it helps to understand the process of your reasoning. Well, these are two examples, hypothetical deductive reasoning, pattern recognition. So I think it helps to understand what's involved in those and, and the, the process you go through. So very briefly, you know, you, you obtain information from the patient from your observations, from your, your interviews, from your physical assessments with them, from the referral, from the, the, the medical tests, the scans that have been done, you know, information comes from multiple sources. You have to interpret that information. Well, first place, you have to perceive what's potentially relevant. And perception is where reasoning begins, I, I believe. And perception is linked to knowledge. So, and then when you perceive something, you're going through a medical chart and underline everything that you think is important. You perceive this as potentially important. You then have to interpret it. So that interpretation is your analysis, and the analysis occurs at different levels. So I would say you interpret every single piece of information. I could stop you on the spot and say, tell me what that meant to you. That answer to that question or that test, what did you think of that? And you should be able to say, well, you know, it was positive in this sense and it could mean this. But then you have to synthesize information. And this is where it really gets fun because this is when it, it's uh, – reasoning, I think, is simple to understand because it's really kind of just logic. But it's hard to do in real practice for two reasons. One is because you have to synthesize information. And two, because you have to do it on your feet. In other words, you have to be – questioning and physically testing while you're analyzing. You can't just wait till you're done and go away and think about it. And that is what makes it challenging. And that's what requires practice. Can you do it while you're examining a patient? So the hypothetical deductive process is you perceive, you interpret. Based on that interpretation, you may ask additional questions. You may modify your question. It may mean to you, well, therefore, I'm going to test this. So your, your routine examination that you've learned may suddenly be modified. I don't need to do this instability test, but I do need to do a neurological. But the last patient who had, you know, a neck problem, I didn't need to do a neurological. So you're, you're making decisions as to what needs to be done. You're doing those things 
not just because, well, that's what we learned. Here's how we examine a neck and here's what our routine is. You're doing them because in a way you're testing hypotheses. I thought this might be possible. I hypothesized. Therefore, I asked this question. It supported my, my analysis. Therefore, I did this test. It supported my hypothesis. And now I'm thinking this. So it's, I think of their questioning and the physical assessments as a way of testing their hypotheses, gradually developing what I like to describe as an evolving through the examination and, and through the treatment reassessment, an evolving understanding of the person and their experiences with their problem and their psychosocial makeup and the problem biologically, physically. That, those things are sort of simultaneously, mm -hmm. your diagnostic and your narrative reasoning are, you know, Ian said they're dialectically, you know, occurring. They, they occur, you, you jump from one to the other. You ask a question in your head was a diagnostic question but the patient answers it with how stressed they are. So you just eat automatically and fluidly, your brain shifts to the psychosocial realm and how relevant that stress might be. And is it, is it affecting their symptoms or their behaviors? And that's very real. So Ian demonstrated that in his own PhD. And it's a skill to learn because the student learning this process kind of, you know, wants to stick with their, their frame of thinking. If they go off with the patient into their stress, they lose the track where they were. If they ignore what the patient said, they run the risk of losing the patient. Like, I'm not interested in what you just said. So, you know, that's when you start bringing in the communication skills of that's really important. Thank you. If it's all right, I'm just going to come back to that in a moment or however you choose to handle it. You might pursue it then. You might pursue it later, but you acknowledge it and you value it and you write it down so you don't have to ask that question again, which is annoying when, you know, I already told you that. And you come back to that important point. Now, you know, a while back, you talked yeah. about how stressed you were. You know, can you tell me more about that? And you, ex you explore that, that domain. So that's all falls into this sort of hypothetical deductive reasoning. It's really the, in Daniel Kahneman's, you know, famous book, it's, it's the, the part two it processing. You know, it's the slow analytical reasoning that you, you do. Within that, and really embedded in that, is pattern recognition. Because... If you say, well, why did you decide to do this test? Like, why did you decide on this patient to do a neurological? And it wasn't on the last patient who had that kind of problem. And you said, well, because I had these clues. You're recognizing a pattern and you're wanting to test that pattern. So really, it's embedded. The, people often talk about it's either or. You do one or you do the other. And in fact, I recently listened to a podcast of um, Daniel Kahneman talk about his new book, Noise, which was brilliant. I highly recommend it to everybody. And he, he, he talked about how oversimplified, you know, the one and two types of thinking are. And, and he knew that when he did it. He said, but that's what people grab. They like simple explanations of things. Um, and, and they're really integrated. And so you're, you're using pattern recognition in your hypothetical deductive reasoning. Sure, there are times when something is really, really obvious. And I, I, when I first introduced pattern recognition to students, 
and they're young physiotherapy students, I'll say, well, the last time you were out in public and you were sitting there, I guarantee you probably watched people walk by and you did your own little analysis of their gates. Every physio can't mm. stop themselves when they first learn about gait and lower limb problems and, and they start to learn about different conditions and you say, oh, that poor man's had a stroke. Or you're looking at their limp and you're trying to work out, is it their hip or their knee? Mm -hmm. That's pattern recognition. You've got very li limited information and you, you're coming up with, you know, an opinion about what you think explains the thing you're seeing. Sometimes the problem is so simple, so straightforward, you rely only on that. But really, I think in most cases... Most clinicians will always do degrees of hypothetical deductive reasoning. You know, they will always have that as a backup. Patient walks in, you know, late on a Friday night, they're limping, and they said they rolled their ankle, and they kind of give you an indication of like a, a supination or inversion sprain. You probably know what it is, you know what they injured, you know the stage of pathophysiology, the process they're in and the healing process, you know how you're probably mm -hmm. going to present to you you know, probably what you're going to end up doing for treatment. And, you know, if you had a hot date, you could probably skip your examination and go straight to treatment. But you don't. So even though you recognize the pattern, you, you skip through your examination, you do a bit of screening, you ask about other symptoms, because every now and then it isn't straightforward. And the patient says, well, yeah, now that you mention it, I am getting some tingling up my leg. And so what you thought was probably just a simple anterior talofibular ligament sprain, now that's got a neural involvement to it. Mm. So I, I think we use, even in kind of really clear patterns, we still use hypothetical deductive reasoning as a backup just to make sure we don't miss things. And then, of course, the more complex the problem is, well, it, the pattern just isn't clear. And so you've got to really rely on this slower analytical process. Yeah. Or there isn't there isn't a previous pattern yeah. kind of stored in some schema. You have you haven't seen a patient like this. And so there's no real pattern to kind of fall back on to recognize. Yeah, that's a really important point because if you're a student or if you're a new physiotherapist, you don't have that. <laughs> and you need to use the slower analytical process. To, or you only have textbook patterns. You've never seen yeah. one of those in a real patient to build it up. I, I once in my travels made a habit of asking every clinician in different countries, how long do you have with your patients? And it varied as you'd imagine, but the shortest average patient appointment I came across was 10 minutes. And I thought to myself, oh, the poor new graduate who only has 10 minutes, you'd have to rely 100% on pattern recognition. You couldn't screen and you couldn't test hypotheses. Mm. So it's it's a real limitation if that's all you have and you don't have a lot of time. Yeah. And I think, you know, what on the podcast, I've spoken lots about various theories as they apply to clinical practice, theories around causation, obviously the biosocial model. But previously when you were talking and just kind of talking through the kind of fun stuff of clinical reasoning, it just becomes evident when you're talking through that process almost in real time, and it obviously isn't real time, it's the reasoning 20 times faster than you're saying it, but nonetheless, it gives us a sense of the agility needed and the kind of cognitive agility to move between these different strategies, the social ability to have, to still hold a conversation with a patient. So you could just stand there, mute, you know, quiet, 
thinking, but you've got a patient in front of you that also needs to be interacted with and can have some kind of discourse with, whilst at the same time you've got this process kind of whizzing around, relying on previous patient kind of scenarios, thinking about examination strategies, thinking about possible differential, I mean, all this stuff just whizzing around. It's it's a hugely complex process. It is. And as you'd know, it even when you sort of understand reasoning theory, how well you do it really varies. And 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 how well you do it in terms of how smoothly you do it, how convincingly you do it, and and how how some of the terms I like to think about in, in, in this how you do it reason, I like to think about how thoroughly you do it, how accurately you do it, how precisely you do it. And those are, those are terms that come from the, the literature around critical thinking. And I've, I've developed an interest in critical thinking in the last five plus years. And, and I'm, I'm convinced it's a it, it's, it's got something to add to our understanding and teaching of clinical reasoning because clinical reasoning is arguably just critical thinking in a clinical situation. So critical thinking is, is, is good analytical thinking. So not all, good, not all analytical thinking is good. But then when we say good, what do you mean by good? Like what, what makes for good analytical thinking? And then you can turn that into what makes for good clinical reasoning. And what I really liked when I started to get into reading the, the literature, and I'll, I'll plug a particular institute. It's a foundation for critical thinking. It's an institute in, out of California, and I, I've been taking their courses, read their work, and involved with them. In fact, I'm in the study group I do with them. And its, it's it value is to make the critical thinking more explicit. And what they did that I hadn't come across in clinical reasoning as much was to sort of develop criteria for what is good critical thinking, or we'll call it good clinical reasoning. And they talk about things like clarity of the analysis, accuracy, relevance, depth, breadth, how logical it is in terms of your inferences that you make. And I think those terms, at least some of those terms, are quite good. And I, I've now integrated those. And you can do them several ways. You can do them into, you can apply them to the information you obtain from your patient. So how clear, accurate, and precise is it? So many patients aren't. So many patients, their answer to our questions can be quite vague. Well, the good communicator, as you were touching on, you know, you have to be able to think and do this at the same time the good communicator will clarify their response straight away. So I, you might use an example, you know, my back I hurts when I walk. Well, it hurts when I walk is, is useful information, but it's not very precise information. So I want to know more about that. So what is it about your walking? Is it the speed? Is it the surface? Is it the shoes? Is it the distance? So I want more information about that. And that might be obvious, and I think a good clinician would do that anyway. But if you wanted to teach this to another person, you say, can you see that was rather general or rather vague? It didn't have precision. And then when the student gives me the report of their analysis, so they summarize their 
not just their findings, but their analysis of their findings, often that lacks precision. Oh, my patient had poor motor control. Well, wow, that's a broad statement. What does that mean? That can manifest in so many ways. And so I can now, if I've taught them that precision is part of good reasoning, can you be more precise? What was it about their motor control? So I, I like what that has brought to my teaching of reasoning and my interaction with helping students do this better because they, they understand these words, you know, the, the breadth and depth is, you know, how thorough did you even consider their psychosocial status or did you just look at them biologically? <laughs> did you even consider their perspective or did you only look at it from your perspective? Did, that's, that's the shared decision-making. Mm -hmm. Did you consider their preferences? So I can start to link these things that are called good critical thinking, good clinical reasoning to, to what they're doing and then help them do that better. I mean, it comes back to, to time. I mean, if you're going to really be interested in the other person's perspective or the meaning of the words that the patient's using, what do you mean by it hurts when you walk? You know, what stage you're walking? You go on, you, know, you need, it really requires time and space to have those conversations in a 10 minute appointment. You're just not going to even going to skim the surface. So, so again, emphasizes the kind of value of time and communication as a kind of key skill. It does. And it's a very real barrier. And in fact, if I've ever in a teaching situation, sometimes they, they, you demonstrate, you demonstrate a patient examination and give your reasoning through it. And usually what happens is one, you, you know, because you're in front of an audience, you try to be really thorough and, and you do it as well as you can. But <laughs> you almost always get the comment, well, that's fine if you have an hour, but I only have 30 minutes with my patients. So time is a very real consideration, but I never let people off on that argument. I don't ever let them get away with using time as an excuse. I say, yes, you're right. And so what you need to do is learn how to prioritize. So you can't say, just because I have 30 minutes, I'm going to skip this, this, and this. Like, it's not important. But what you're going to do is I say, I'm going to clarify the problem in the beginning. And you might, you might in the opening two or three minutes, get clues to this is chronic. There's lots of psychosocial issues here. It's going to take time to understand all this. And you start to make some decisions. Now, one decision may just simply say to the patient that this is clearly quite involved and I can help you best the more I understand it, which is going to take time. And we need to ask a lot about this, some of these things. So there's a couple of ways we can do this. We could focus on that today and come back to some other things later. You've had this problem for six years. Mm. We're not going to solve it today. Or we can, we can spread this out over a couple appointments, and today we'll focus on this, and next time I'd like to come back and focus on this. Or I say to the student, you know, look at all the physical assessments that you say ought to be done. Which ones are essential day one? Do those. You still have to be able to give an explanation and provide a treatment and reassessment and probably some home exercise. But then the other ones come back to them. And, and do them, make a little list of what I haven't got done. When, I, when I'm in a situation to do a second opinion, I would say nine times out of 10, what I can find that maybe the person didn't find wasn't something they didn't know. No, it's just something they didn't do. And they're often very embarrassed. Oh, I can't believe I didn't look at that or I didn't do that very well. 
And so it's basically just spreading your examination over a longer period of time, but still be thorough in what you do. And maybe I'm just looking at the time. I really want to get to, well, two things. One is to touch on metacognition and the kind of crucial role that that self-awareness and self-reflexive process has in good clinical reasoning. But at the same time, maybe if you could make any suggestions about how we get better at clinical reasoning. I mean, you've, you've suggested some already, but certainly for me, just learning more about clinical reasoning, being able to locate my own reasoning in the extent literature on clinical reasoning, your work, Ian's work, Gail's work, you know, just saying, okay, so I can kind of begin to see now what I've been doing intuitively or tacitly, if you like, it gives some kind of insight into one's own thinking. But yeah, but what's the, maybe we start with metacognition, what that is and its primacy and good clinical reasoning. So I, I see metacognition as self-awareness and your ability to reflect and critique. But I'll qualify, it can also be very automatic. So it doesn't, doesn't have to be I sit down and critique myself. I could have done that better. I should have done, should have added this. That You can do it that way. In fact, I'll, I'll come back to that because when you're learning it, you sometimes have to do it mechanically before you can do it automatically. But I think initially people aren't even aware they're doing it. And I'll, I'll give them an example. Have you ever asked a question and then almost immediately before you finish the question, rephrased it? So in other words, you've caught yourself in, I wasn't clear in what I wanted to say there. That's self-awareness and that's metacognition. And that's almost intuitive. I mean, or tacit. You, you, it wasn't a real conscious reflection. It's just, yep, I heard that come out wrong and I'm going to say it say it differently mm. or have you ever have you ever been doing a I say a physical procedure with a patient and just automatically adjusted what you were doing while you were doing it and usually that was in response to some subtle clue it could have been their face it could have been their sound they could have yelped <laughs> often it's even just a change of tone you can feel them start a little subtle guarding and so you you slow down you change your grip etc that's metacognition because I look at that as you're monitoring yourself and you're adjusting what you're doing as you do it. So one thing is, like everything, I think it helps if you first understand a concept. This is what it is. This is how it manifests. You know, good, good clinicians do this all the time. And I want to help you be able to, to do this, but you need to be alert to it. And then we need, we need to practice it. Another aspect of, of metacognition is, is awareness of your own knowledge and limitations in your knowledge. Sometimes I, I, I define an expert as somebody who knows a lot. They're very good at what they do. They get good outcomes with their patients, but they also know what they don't know. And it always surprises a student that their teacher or some, some so-called expert doesn't know stuff, <laughs> that they, they get things wrong or they have to look stuff up or they ever ask somebody else for another opinion. 
or they make a patient worse. <laughs> and you think, oh, my God, you, you talk to anybody and they'll say, yes, yeah, you know, that, that's kind of probably why I've, I've got to my level is because I'm constantly learning and I'll learn something tomorrow. So an expert, if they, if they hear something or they see a presentation that is unusual or unfamiliar, or could even just be a medication you don't know, they immediately recognize it and they act on it. And it could be act on it as simple as I just look it up. Or an expert will also ask other people's opinions about their case. They also consult. Mm. So that sort of awareness of your knowledge and your clinical patterns, et cetera, is, is also metacognition. Now, learning metacognition initially, I believe, occurs through, through a, a facilitation process of drawing out the individual's analysis. What do they think and why do they think it? So some people think things, but they can't articulate why they think them. So you, they need practice in saying, here's what I think and here's why I think it. It's the facilitator's role to try to add to that and say, well, we could also consider this, this, or this. Or here's some other things that would support, or maybe here's something that wouldn't support. So you decide how much you give them. And you might even decide whether you give them. There's, there's, there's a real, there's no right way to do it as a facilitator. Sometimes your facilitation is, I'd like you to go look this up. And when you come back tomorrow, we'll talk about it. So I want you to do some more homework on it, especially if it's something I expected you to know. We, we've covered that. And so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you back and you do some more work and then we'll talk about it. Other times you do it right then and there on the spot if, if the circumstances allow for it. Other times you do it as a debrief afterwards when you're going through something, but you're going through reviewing their analysis. So it's the review of their analysis and the feedback, which hopefully creates learning, which hopefully means the next time that occurs, they've got more metacognitive awareness. Now, you know, people pick it up quicker than others. It takes, it takes time. But what, you're, what you're, I think you're aiming for is for them to be able to critique themselves when you're not with them. Mm. Because when they graduate, you know, sure, they can occasionally ask a, a colleague, but they're not going to have the same level of supervision they have now in formal education. So you want them to be doing this. So you, you can not only practice that, you can make it more overt. What did you do well? You know, what did you think you could have done better? So you get them thinking about that. And in reality, we, we tend to be our own harshest critics. And so, you know, somebody who really wants to learn will, will criticize how they did things. And sometimes you end up saying, well, really, it wasn't that bad. Um, <laughs> and you try to help them out there. But I think it's that practice of, of probing their analysis, the reasons for their analysis, giving them feedback on it. And, and getting them to practice it so it starts to become more automatic mm. without your prompts. Yeah, and I think some of just, as you said, helping people to articulate that reasoning, which often hasn't been articulated, it just resides within their head. And by them just hearing those words come out, they're kind of reflecting on it as those has those words go, oh yeah, oh, you know, it becomes explicit, doesn't it? Once you begin to say, say these things out loud and they can 
then then can begin to reflect or critically reflect on on their thinking. So just having a conversation in a, in a critical the critical friend in itself can be really valuable just to, just to kind of build those reflective skills. And that's one area where I believe if you have a framework of reasoning that you teach, and I'll use the example, well, the biopsychosocial model is a framework, the ICF framework, the hypothesis categories framework. It creates a structure that they can start with. So they can start with, when you say, what do you think? Well, let's just go through the hypothesis categories. So let's go through these two or three categories. Tell me what you think about those. There's a problem with that because some people, as soon as you give them a structure, they can't work outside that structure. Or I learned Mark's categories, you know, 20 years ago, and I'm still using the same ones, and we've moved on from those. So you do have to be careful, as a, I think, as a facilitator, that you're not trying to create a little duplicate of yourself. You're trying to create an open-minded, critical thinker. You, you might give them your framework, because that's what they're there for, to learn from you. But don't try to present it as the only way to do it. And, and the reason I say that is because, you know, when students are learning and they're talking about problems, they may come up with something outside that framework. And I would never discourage that. I would always explore that with them. And I wouldn't try to force it into my framework because I don't, I don't see a reasoning like that. I, I, when people say, well, what do you think about O'Sullivan's model? It's brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's another really nice way of conceptualizing, you know, things to think about around pain. So there isn't one framework, but you need to have a framework and you need to be able to use and take things from different things. And, you know, it brings us nicely to the to the series where hopefully, I'm not saying the series will be any kind of framework, but certainly a series of conversations to spark people's own kind of reflection about reasoning and obviously awareness of the clinical reasoning literature. So thank you so much for, for being involved. It's a pleasure. I, it's my favorite topic to talk about. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm really pleased to contribute to it. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Mark. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources, and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.